um, in order to uh, hear from a man who I count as one of my dearest friends, um, a man who was a pastor here for many years uh, at Treasure in Christ Church and felt the, the calling and the leading of God upon his life to seek with his family to try to pour into a business that might be able to not only support his family, but reach um, people that do not know Jesus with the good news of Christ. And so Paul Sarazen, his wife's Amy is back there. Um, Kids are not here, but we love them as well. And I just want you to know, some of you especially who are guests, um, that uh, some of the things that come to my mind as I think about my dear brother that he is a constant encouragement. This man is a joyful, a genuinely joyful man and a generous man. And that God has really worked in him a humility. Uh, he and I talk every six weeks or so uh, on the phone and I, he's just a great listener. And I really know that he believes God hears his prayers and that he expects God to move uh, through uh, praying to him on my behalf and on behalf of others. And so one thing, if you have ever been around Paul, is that you also know that he's just a servant-hearted man. He will give you the shirt off his back, literally. He will sweat on your behalf, and he will uh, constantly want to point you to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we get the privilege to hear from the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you, and so you can look at those. Uh, also, if you don't own one, we have one out in the foyer. You'll see near the coffee area, Getting Connected table. Uh, there's some Bibles down there at the bottom that are giveaways. We would love to give you those um, as uh, a gift uh, to you today. So... Without delaying any more, I thank God for Brother Paul Sarazen as he comes to bring the word from 1 Peter today. All right, well, good morning. Well, it is, John, thank you. Um, it is my deepest joy to be here. I count it a great, great privilege and opportunity to be here with you with a, a place I love, a church family I love, with elders that I deeply love, and um, so I'm, I'm so thankful to have this opportunity. If you got your Bibles, if you'll go ahead and turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab one on the end of the row. It should be on page 1014, First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Say this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we, you're, you're so good. You're so big. And you and your kindness, you bring us low that we may lift your name high. Father, I pray that you will just, you will soften our hearts, tear us apart, Lord, um, so that we will see how empty it is to rely on ourselves, that we may come before you and say, I'm a man of unclean lips. You are holy. You are awesome. You are majestic. You are everything. So, Father, please free us from the distractions we came in here with this morning. Please help us to get out of just that um, bottle of all the things that are going on in our lives that we may just have a bigger view right now of who you are. God, you are everything, and your son has done everything for us. So God, please help us to center our hearts around him right now, that we may be satisfied in him, in you alone. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I've got, I've got a ton of, of fond memories of TCC, um, many, many, many. But one that really stands out to me was from, from August 23rd, 2011. And I, I, didn't just, I didn't just remember that date. I, did, I don't have it tatted on my ankle or anything like that. It, I, I actually went to WRAL and I Googled this event or I looked it up this event and, and found out when it was. But um, all the staff, we were all over, we were working in the Longview Center. And uh, we're all up there. We had offices on the second floor. That's the building um, a couple blocks from here where TCC was before we moved over here. So we're all over there working. And all of a sudden, um, the building begins to sway. You know, the building begins to sway. It's a gentle sway, but it's swaying. And the, the, the world was moving, you know. The, the earth was shaking. And I'm no geologist, but I know, um, I know that when the ground shakes, it's, it's one of two things. Either it's an earthquake or if you've ever seen that 1990 Kevin Bacon movie, Tremors, a giant man-eating worms about to come up and get you. It's one of the two. Either way, it's not good, right? And I'm no building inspector, but I know that if the world, the earth is shaking, the building is moving, the Longview Center is not one that I want to be in. Um, I've, I've been to Charleston. I've seen buildings that got earthquake rods. I don't think that one's got them. So the building's swaying, and, and all of a sudden, there's this flash of lightning down through the hall. It turns out that was just Heather getting out of the building. But, but the building's shaking, and it's an unsettling feeling when the ground beneath you, when the structure that felt so secure begins to move and begins to tremble, right? So we all go outside in haste. We all go outside in haste, except for Pastor Sean, who wouldn't give up his Skype call with the church planter, John Pope. <laughs> outside, the rest of us, um, who had been in our offices feeling secure, feeling comfortable, we became a little timid. We became a little afraid. You know, we got our iPhones out. We're like, what's going on? Well, is, it, is this, is is this going to be the prelude to a big earthquake? Is it okay to go back in the building? Because we became timid because our sense of security, our sense of, of safety, our sense of stability, our sense of control, it was shaken. It was shaken. And it's like that in life, you know? Things begin to shake. Circumstances move beyond our control. It feels like we're trapped. The walls feel like they're closing in, and we become fearful. We become timid. We become afraid. We become consumed by worry. Imagine today parts of your life feel unstable, right? Imagine today parts of your life feel shaky, out of control. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your job situation. But I imagine things feel out of control. I imagine you know what it's like when, as Reese Witherspoon says in Sweet Home Alabama, life just goes pear-shaped. Life goes pear-shaped. What about when our sense of security our sense of safety is threatened. You know, in the past few weeks or, or months, you can look back and, you know, in South Carolina where I live now, 
Um, nine brothers and sisters in Christ were tragically murdered in an act of gross racist violence, right? Um, the last couple of weeks, a terrorist gunman in Chattanooga kills five people. On any given day, in any city, you can turn on the news and you can see some tragic violence. And our sense of safety can feel shaken. What about when society feels shaky? It just feels like the society we live in is on shaky ground. We see heart-wrenching public policies that seem like the norm, a uh, breakdown of morals. We see someone from Planned Parenthood talking about the, 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 the sale of aborted babies' um, body parts, aborted child's body parts. It feels like society is on shaky ground many times. Or what about our financial system, the structure in America? What, what if we experience a financial recession or a collapse like Greece is experiencing and other nations have long known? What if all we've known regarding peaceful lives for believers in America crashes and deep persecution of the church arises? What if public policies in America become increasingly corrupt and violence increases? What if our safety, our security, our financial stability is threatened or is, is taken in a moment? How do we respond? How do we respond? How do we view God in the midst of chaos, in the midst of instability? Because how we view God will fuel our response, and our response will indicate where our treasure lies, where our true hope lies. If our ultimate hopes in financial security, our physical appearance, our political system, our health, other people, safety, whatever, you fill in the blank, then our hearts will be overcome by fear and anxiety because it's a misplaced hope. It's a misplaced hope. It's centered on something that's changing, something that's unsteady, something that's insecure. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are good, the whole body will be full of light, but if the eyes are bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, what we focus on will fill us with light or darkness. If our focus is right, then the light of Jesus will shine peace and joy into our hearts in all circumstances. But if our focus is on the misplaced hopes of the things of this world, then your life will be filled with the bitterness of fear and anxiety. We've all experienced that, right? So let me just ask, how's your heart this morning? How's your heart this morning? How about this past week? How about this past month? How about this past year? You know, have you been treading in choppy waters? Have you been anxiously trying to hold your head up, just fearfully kind of gasping for air? I can relate to that. I can relate to that. My family and I made a tough decision, really, really hard decision um, to leave Raleigh, to leave TCC um, a year ago, exactly a year ago, to move to South Carolina. And you know how hard life transition is, right? You've probably been there. Here, here are the emotions. We, we feel emotions of loneliness many times, fear, feelings of insecurity, instability. feels like the ground is shaking. It felt for us like the ground was shaking. For, for Amy and I, we even just struggled because things were so, so unfamiliar, so different in a new place, right? In North Carolina, the the state bird is a cardinal. In South Carolina, the state bird is a bottle rocket, you know? <laughs> One's not better than the other. They both fly, but they're just different. They're different. In North Carolina, you, you, you get a motorcycle. It comes with a helmet. In South Carolina, they don't even sell helmets. In Psalm 42, in Psalm 42, in a moment of just realness, in a moment of rawness, the psalmist says, he says, my tears have been my food. My tears have been my food. I, I could say, I could say over the first six months that my fears had been my food. My fears were my food. My heart was afraid. It was a mess. In his kindness, though, in his kindness, God took my fearful heart through choppy seas. In today's text, this was my lifeboat. This was my tutor. This was my help. God used stormy waters to expose to me the filth of my self-reliance, my misplaced hope. 
by clinging to earthly security and stability. You see, my heart was like the mason jar where the water seemed really clear and clean in it, but all of a sudden when the jar was shaken, the water becomes really murky, it becomes really dirty. What seemed clean was now shaken, it, it becomes dirty. And it, it wasn't that the dirt wasn't there, the dirt was there, the dirt was lying dormant in the bottom of the jar. And it only became evident when the jar was shaken. When my sense of security was shaken through difficult circumstances, circumstances I felt like I, or I couldn't control, God exposed the filth of my self-reliance. He exposed that, and through this text, He's taken my heart to a level of rest, a level of freedom in Christ that I'd never known. I'd honestly never experienced. God did not give us a spirit of fear. And where the spirit is, there's what? There's freedom. There's freedom. Spurgeon calls, Charles Spurgeon calls this text a string of pearls. No matter what your life looks like today, no matter how bad, how unstable, I mean, so I want you to know there is hope. There is hope in these priceless truths. There's living hope. And Peter wrote this text from 1 Peter. I know Sean's taught, intro 2 Peter last week in a great sermon about God as, as our provider. Um, Peter was just a normal dude. You know, Peter was a blue-collar guy from a family of fishermen. He was just like us, just doing life his way when, when all of a sudden he met Jesus and his heart was radically transformed. He became a follower of Christ. He had many ups and downs, right? We read about them in the Gospels. At Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, Peter, Peter bailed on Jesus, you know, he, he denied Jesus three times. And after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus went to Peter in John 21. And, and he, here's what he asked. He said, Peter, it's like, do you love me? And he, he used a word there that um, was in, for intense love, right? Full, all-out commitment. And then Jesus later, he began to prophesy. It says in John 21, he began to prophesy about what kind of death Peter was gonna die to glorify God. Now, Jesus is gonna prophesy about your future, right? This is not, not what you wanna hear. He said in John 21, he said, you'll stretch out your hand and one day another will carry you where you do not wish to go. And then in John 21, 19, he, it says, this Jesus spoke to signify by what death Peter would glorify God. And when Jesus had spoke this, he then looked at Peter and he's like, follow me, follow me. And see, we know, we know that Peter understood what Jesus was saying about that prophecy because he then looks at, at the other disciple. He's like, what about this guy? You know, what's gonna happen to him? So Peter now knows how the end of his life is gonna play out. He knows. He's gonna die a rough death. This isn't the fairy tale that he likely imagined when he was sitting on the pier watching Daddy hauling crappy as a little kid. So Peter had to count the cost. He had to count the cost and he's all in. Now I want you just to, let's just kind of roll this around in our mind for a minute because to be all in, he had to work out some things that you and I in our American culture don't often want to think about. He had seen the suffering of Christ. He had seen it. He had seen how Jesus was hated. He had seen how the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He had seen how the cup that Jesus had to drink led to him sweating drops of, of blood in the garden in agony. He had seen how this led Jesus to die a bloody death on the cross to purchase our freedom through faith. He saw it all. He saw it all, and he knows now that he too will suffer and die a murderous death, and he's all in. He's all in. He gets what Acts 14, says, that through many tribulations, through much suffering, we enter the kingdom of heaven. 
See, this isn't, this isn't prosperity gospel stuff. This isn't some fairy tale American version of Christianity. This is Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, Peter's counted the cost. He knows what life will hold. He can see the folly. He can see the folly and the instability in building his hope around anything this world has to offer because he knows now his life is but a vapor. He knows it's but a vapor. Psalm 90 says, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 39 says, make me know my end, how fleeting life is. He knows his life can change in the blink of an eye, in the beat of a heart, in the single breath, in the time it takes to receive a text, right? This week, I, I saw an article about a a group who was going, they were at the height of celebration, man. They were, they were going to a wedding in a limo, just going from kind of, it was a wedding party celebration. They were going like from winery to winery, just celebrating, just having, having a good time in a limo, wedding, feast, celebration. And all of a sudden, they had a wreck. And in the blink of an eye, four of them died. And they go from the height of celebration to the depths of tragedy. You know, life can change in a blink. And just think about the fears and anxieties that can consume Peter's heart right now. Think about the, the anxieties that consume him. He knows he's gonna die at the hands of another, but he doesn't know when. He knows he's gonna suffer, right? But he doesn't know. I mean, how bad is he gonna hurt? He's married. Scripture tells us he's married. So he's gotta wrestle with things like, what about my wife? Will I go first? <laughs> will she be harmed? How will she eat? How will she be provided for financially, physically? Where will she live? Will she remarry? I mean, I'm just thinking of all the things that might be swirling through his head. His heart could be a fearful, anxious mess that would paralyze him unless, unless he has a big view of a faithful God and has his eyes focused on and his hope on eternity. Jesus didn't just say, follow me to Peter. In John 21, he goes on and says, feed my sheep. Now go and feed my sheep. And in today's text, Peter's doing just that. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to weary followers of Christ who are facing hardship. And by extension, he's writing to us. Weary, often, often distracted followers of Christ in the 21st century church. And I really don't think there's a, a more needed text for me, for my heart, for the American church than this. Verse one, um, he's writing to, it says, exiles, elect exiles of the dispersion. Exiles of the dispersion. Um, these were Christians who had to go to a new land, and Sean touched on this last week, Christians who had to go to a new land because of persecution under a demented ruler, Nero, who actually blamed Christians for burning down the city that Nero burned down. So people hated them, right? They had to get out. They had to leave and now experience the uncertainties of life in a new land like someone who's fleeing one oppressive government trying to find a place of peace. They had to leave the security of their homes and everything they knew as normal. So they're exiles, physically, right? They're exiles, yet they're also spiritually exiles in the world. They're spiritually exiles in the world like us. In two, chapter two, verse 11, he calls them sojourners and exiles there. He calls them sojourners, exiles. Another translation or, or other translations say aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. Um, we've got some aliens here. I believe we've got some aliens. We got a few. Um, Everybody knows this guy top left, right? That's E.T. Everybody knows him. He's, he dates back to Pastor Travis's heyday. That's E.T. Um, he's just different, right? He's different. What about, what about this guy to the right? You may not know him as well. Um, he's, he's, he's back in my day. Um, anybody know his name? Mork. Mork. Where's Mork from? Mork from? 
Ork, Mork from Ork, right? And what's, what's different about Mork? What was different about Mork? Lots of things, but what, what's a couple? He didn't shake hands. He said, nanu, 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 right? That was Mork. Um, what, you remember how he hung out on the couch? He sat on his head, right? He just chilled on his head. That's Mork from Ork. What about this guy? This is my favorite. One of my favorite shows of all time, Alf. Alf. Um, anybody remember where Alf was from? Mel Mack. And do you remember what was different about Alf and different on Mel Mack? Their diet. He ate cats. Another Alf lover, right? He ate cats. <laughs> um, but what do they all have in common? They all have in common. What they all have in common is that they're different. They're different from all the other people here. They're different. Peter calls these believers in this text, he calls us aliens, strangers here, sojourners, because our lives are to be different, because our lives are to be different, namely because our hope is different, right? We don't have to be consumed by fear. We don't have to be consumed by fear. The world is full of darkness. It's full of brokenness, and Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But what makes us really different is our hope, our peace that sustains us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of life's shaky grounds, in the midst of when it feels like the walls are caving. Peter assumes this later in the letter that our hope in the midst of suffering stands out so much that other people will ask us what in the world we're hoping for, and we can tell them nothing in this world, right? We're hoping for Christ. We're hoping in Christ. We're hoping in eternal things. And Peter's writing in this text to help us set our gaze, to help us set our focus on our true home, our true hope that is eternally secure, and gives us peace and confidence and joy in this world, even when the walls shake. I wanna first look at verse three, and then I want us to look at just three really practical ways to renew our focus. Let's look at verse three. Verse three says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, you know, Peter's just letting loose in passionate praise, passionate worship, in the face of difficulty, in the face of uncertainty that he and they face. You see, praise, I don't know about you, but for me, praise isn't my natural response in the midst of suffering and pain. It's not natural. Our first, step, our first response, mine often is grumbling, is complaining. And that evidence is a heart of fear. Rather than praise, it evidences a faith-filled heart, a heart that's confident in God, that's confident in God, that rests in him. Peter begins by praising and worshiping God. See, we're always worshiping something. As aliens here, we're different in that we center our worship, we center our lives around the creator God and not the created things like image and power and money and sex, right? Worship of God happens when we know here in our minds a truth about God, and that truth affects our, wow, it affects our hearts and moves us to sing and speak and declare praise to our God. Peter's words evidence his heart, where his treasure is. He's describing with his lips ultimate worth to God. What did your words, what did your responses this week indicate your heart is treasuring and taking hope in? Were they words of peace and joy and blessing, praise, or did they tear down? Were they filled with bitterness and anger, sharpness and impatience? When the walls of our lives shake, our responses reveal our hearts, where our hope lies, where our treasure lies in that moment. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And he says that what, he says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you treasure here ultimately fuels what comes out here. 
And our true hope, our true treasure is revealed when our world is shaken. So how do we spew praise here like Peter in the midst of life's trials? Because I see temptation toward fear leading me to complain rather than faith leading me to praise and be filled with thankfulness. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says is the grounds for thanksgiving and worship. In Hebrews 12, 28, he says, since because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Mm. Thankfulness, praise, worship flow from knowing the security of future grace, that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, in the face of affliction, we look not to what is seen, the things of the world, but to what is unseen, the things of eternity. So we build faith leading to praise and thanksgiving and crush fear by looking at the security of what we can't see. We look at what we can't see, (laughs) you know? I can't see the resurrected Christ with my eyes, but I see him here. I can't see eternal treasures for me secured with my eyes, but I see this reality here. I can't see in a hard moment that God is working at all to make me more like Jesus, more joyful in him and more reliant upon him, but I see and I'm reminded here. For faith leading to praise, we must look to and focus on what's physically unseen. This text is rich, and it can, I mean, literally, there could be just bukus and bukus of different sermons preached on this text. I'm gonna point out three things that will fuel in us passionate praise, confidence in God if we'll gaze upon and go back to this every day as we fight to walk for faith and not fear. Number one, first thing, verse three, we need to look back at God's mercy through the resurrection. We need to look back at God's mercy through the resurrection. Let me read verse three. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it starts out according to his great mercy. So all that follows falls under the banner of God's great mercy. It means God, God didn't give us the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Amen. But it's not just God's mercy in the text. It's God's great mercy. It's his great mercy. God doesn't just withhold from us the wrath that we deserve. You remember the game, that game Mercy? Everybody remember that? You know, your hand wrestle with somebody who's got bigger hands and stronger arms, and they bend your hand back, and you start to hurt, and all of a sudden you look at them, and you go, mercy, mercy, right? And what do they do? They stop hurting you, right? They relent. They stop hurting you. Mercy means that they let up. They ease up. God doesn't just let up. He doesn't just withhold punishment and wrath, but he also showers us with present and future grace. Isn't that awesome? As he brought us who deserve death to a living hope, the text says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So first thing for us to set our gaze on is God's mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ You see, this is the foundation of our hope. It's the foundation of our peace. It's the foundation of our joy. And Peter knew it. He knew it. Paul said, if Christ didn't resurrected, then we're wasting our lives. But he is. He's alive. But Peter saw the resurrected Christ, and so do we. The grave couldn't hold him. And we now have a living hope through faith in a living Savior. It means our sins are pardoned. It means our penalty of sin's gone. It means the victory of death is no more. It means there's no more bondage to guilt 
because we've been declared clean. There's no bondage to sin because chains have been broken through Christ. No longer bound by disappointment here because this life is not all there is, right? I want you to think about how the reality of the resurrection must have hit Peter. As Jesus was about to be crucified in Luke 22, in, in Jesus's worst moment, Peter betrayed his friend three times. And in the midst of the betrayal, um, the text says that Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him, right? I picture Jesus looking him in the eyes. And, he, and it says that Peter then, after he betrayed Jesus, he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And then his friend was killed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the shame he felt? Can you imagine the guilt that Peter felt? He was in no doubt the lowest place of his life. In Mark, in the account of the resurrection, the two Marys go to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. And the angel said to him, he is risen. And what does he say in that account? Go and tell Peter. He says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Who was the one guy he singled out by name? He's like, go and tell the disciples and Peter, right? Peter was singled out. Who needed to know the power of the resurrection in that moment so bad? Who needed to know that grace covers us in our worst failures? Who needed to know that it covers us in our lowest moments? Peter and us, right? Now he looks back at the resurrection and he explodes in praise. He explodes in praise. Second thing, verses four to five, we need to look forward to our secure inheritance. We need to look forward to our secure inheritance. So the text says, in God's mercy, he brought us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse four, it says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we look back at the resurrection and we look forward to our future inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfading, and that's secure. And these specific words in this text are used because God knows how easy it is for our sinful hearts to overlove the things of this fallen world, right? He's reminding us of how flimsy, how perishable, how fading, how insecure the things here are. You see, when we overlove them, our vision becomes cloudy and we get very nearsighted. We get very nearsighted. And I, I intentionally use the word overlove because th the things of this world are not bad. They're not bad. You should deeply love your family. You should deeply enjoy your home, enjoy your car, enjoy your job, enjoy your favorite team, enjoy your hobbies, you know? But First Timothy 4 says, the things that God created are good and not to be rejected if they are received with thanksgiving, if they are received with thanksgiving. So the things are not bad if they're received with thanksgiving to God and we hold on to them loosely, using them for his purposes. They're not bad. Enjoy things. Christians should be the most fun-loving, joy-filled people in the world. We're filled with hope. The problem is when we overlove things, right? When we overlove the things and they begin to control our hearts, which is evidenced by being consumed by fear, a fear that we'll lose them. And that overlove is idolatry. And the fear will dominate our lives and it stifles both our love for God and our love for others, right? So Peter's enduring hardship. He knows he'll be murdered. He sees how flimsy it is in this moment. He sees how flimsy it is to build his hope on the things here. And in this moment, he can, he's got a clear picture of the eternal value of the things of God, 
It's got a clear picture. And if you look at and meditate on these truths, this future grace, these things will set you free to loosen your grip on the things here. You must focus there on the things unseen. Our jobs, our finances, our families, our kids, our education, they are all for the kingdom. They're for the kingdom of God. This text, focusing on what's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, secure, should build in us a faith, a confidence in God to view everything here with that perspective. It should build that in us. I can tell you, in my flesh, I mean, I want nothing, I want nothing more in this world, nothing more. I mean, my, my, my highest fleshly desire in this world is to grow old and to die holding hands with my wife at the age of 95. That is like, that is, that is one of my biggest desires in this world. I, I don't know if you see these, these like news articles where they're like put in the paper or whatever, man dies at age 95 holding hands with his wife. They've got hospice around him. He goes and like four minutes later, she goes, you know? And I'll, I'll cry every time I read those. I'm a crybaby. I'll cry. I'll send it to my wife and I'll be like, I want that to be us, you know? And, and, and I, I want to I grow up and coach my kids. I want to grow up and walk my daughter down the aisle if God wills. But if that's what I live for, if that's what I live for, if that's what I place my ultimate hope in, then I'm gonna be paralyzed by fear. I'm gonna be paralyzed by fear. You see, my family is given to me from God for the purpose of God's kingdom. What my kids don't need is for my focus to be on insulating them from the world, on making life ultra comfortable and easy for them or displaying to them that daddy's primary hope is in safety and security. That's not what my kids need. Sure, I need to be wise. I need to be wise. I need to protect them. I need to plan financially. It's not wrong for me to give them things, but ultimately what they need, what they need is to see mom and dad walk by faith, trusting, radically trusting in a sovereign God and living all in for him, all in for Christ. That's what my kids need. Not living in fear, not hoping in and prioritizing the things of the world, but looking to and building our lives around eternal things, God's kingdom. That's what my kids need to see. See, we often think that other nations, third world nations are dangerous, right? Oh, that's the dangerous place. Pastor John Piper says America is the most dangerous place to raise kids. Roll that around your mind for a minute. I chewed on that. that that's had a big impact on my heart and my life over these last few months. He says, America is the most dangerous place to raise kids because it's so hard to raise kids here and not focus them on, or set their focus on the things of this world. It's so hard not to, not to, for us to be focused on security and safety because we can, we can achieve those things here many times. It's such a temptation to raise them focused on those things. My family, my work opportunities, my relationships are all for and about the kingdom of God and so are yours. Matt Chandler says it much better than I ever could. This should start to build confidence in you. Look at me. Nobody dies early. Are you tracking with me? Nobody dies early. I have this joke with my wife. It's not really a joke, and she really doesn't think it's funny, but I travel a lot, and she always tells me to be safe. Normally when I travel, I'm flying. 
a seatbelt versus 30,000 feet. I, I didn't know anyone that's won that yet, all right? I, I just don't know that anyone was like, we crashed, but I was wearing my seatbelt, so we, we were fine. And so one of the things I always tell Lauren is, boo, I'm, I'm untouchable until it's fine. And then upon that time, I, I want to go. Like, if, if, my, if my work for the kingdom is over, then why would I want to be here? What about your wife? What about your kids? To me, my wife and my kids are about the kingdom. If it was just about them, how surface and empty is that? When I look at my beautiful eight-year-old daughter and my five-year-old son and my two-year-old daughter, those three gifts are about the kingdom of God. My beautiful wife is about the kingdom of God. That's what those things are about. If my role is up, then get me out. Let me go where all the devastation of sin isn't. We have a home. We have a home secured where the devastation of sin is not. We must set our minds, we must set our hearts there to live all in for Christ here. We must. When we say to live as Christ, when we can say to live as Christ, then we can say with Paul to die as gain. If to live is hoping in anything else, then to die is not gain, and we should fear, right? Hoping in Christ is secure. It's secure. So I would just say, ask ourselves this. If everything that I've built my life on, all the earthly securities were stripped away, could I say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, in God. If all the props were removed, could I simply rest in him? Could I simply rest in him? When you're anxious about losing some worldly comfort or the approval of man or a position or secure income, there's no better medicine for the soul than to ponder, than to meditate on, than to look at these secure eternal realities that the text says are now kept in heaven for you who are also being kept, being guarded, verse five, by God's power. Wow. God has not only secured for us eternal treasures through Christ, but he has secured and is securing you, believer. That's amazing. See, these truths, these truths stirred around in the heart will fuel passion, passionate praise, and will lead your heart to be like the one in Psalm 112, of whom it says he will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Man, what if, and just imagine for just a minute, what if, what if every time you looked up, wherever you are, wherever I am, wherever we're going, it's like a split screen, but every time you look up from the mall, from work, from the gym, from home, and you could look up and you could just see into eternity. What if you really could? You could look up and with your eyes, you could see into eternity. And you could see the presence of Jesus. And you could see the streets of gold and you could see crystal seas and you could see people worshiping around the throne and you could see sinlessness and you could see a place of perfect peace and you could see with your eyes the martyred saints with perfectly whole, new, resurrected bodies and they're beaming in joy and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're singing and they're rejoicing around the slain lamb who was resurrected and who sits on the throne. What if you could look up and you could just see it? Every time you gazed up, it was like Stephen when he was being martyred and he could see Jesus. And it's crystal clear. And you see that it's all secure. 
It's all secure. It's all imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And then you just look back down and you could see, you could look at this fallen, broken, suffering world around you. Wouldn't you have a different perspective? Wouldn't you have different priorities? Wouldn't you have a different urgency to losing your grip on the things here, to sacrifice in whatever ways God calls you to for the helpless, the hopeless in this brief moment of a life? Because you see all the time how secure your inheritance is. You see the brevity of this life and the folly of hoping in the things here. If you had that constant, clear reminder, how would it impact your life? You know, how would it impact your life? What if you could look up and you could see eternal treasures when you're tempted to go into debt for a fading and perishable new thing that doesn't fit your budget? You know, what if you could just see it with your eyes so clearly? What if you could see it clearly? You can. <laughs> you can hear the pictures, the reminders are here. They're here. And these realities, these eternal realities won't disappoint. They won't disappoint. Eternity, eternity won't be like south of the border, okay? That might be the understatement of, of eternity, but <laughs> eternity won't be like south of the border, right? South of the border, there's 3,000 billboards, and they, they lead you to think it's going to be awesome. It's going to be the best place ever, you know? I've yet to meet the person who went and who came back and was like, man, that was better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> like, hey, hey, man. Man, I knew Pedro's hat was going to be big, but I didn't know it was going to be that big. You know, I haven't met that person yet. Have you? <laughs> we can't even conceive. We can't even conceive with our puny minds really what eternity was going to be like in the presence of Christ. We can't even conceive of it. We won't be disappointed. We won't be disappointed. We will be utterly amazed. Verse 6a, or verse 6, the beginning. It starts like this. It says, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. And that word for rejoice, that's a word for intense rejoicing. In this you rejoice. You see, these eternal realities in all circumstances produce in us intense joy. Intense joy. And it goes on in verse 6. So it's in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So though now for a little while, though now, right, in this present life, in this brief life, for a little while, and that's what this is, that's what our life is in the scope of eternity. If necessary, you have been grieved. So trials are for a little while. They're, they're in this brief life, right? We have to keep that perspective of how brief this life is. It's but a vapor. And he's describing trials as causing what? It's causing grief. We've all been there. They cause, and that word, that's a word for intense grief. Intense, crazy grief. Our lives are filled with trials bringing grief, yet because of our living hope through the resurrection and our future eternal inheritance, we can endure trials with intense joy in Christ because he has overcome and we will overcome. So be confident in him. Be confident in him. But, you know, notice Peter also says that trials come if necessary, if necessary. In other words, God uses trials for a purpose. He uses them for a purpose. He has not lost control. He's not lost control, and that's great to remember. They all bow down to his sovereign purposes. Every trial bows down to his sovereign purposes. So the third truth to focus on, number three, God 
God is working his perfect purposes in our lives. Live presently in light of his perfect purposes. Live presently in light of his perfect purposes. And what is his purpose here? Look at verse seven. Verse seven says, so that, so that because, or so that, excuse me, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God uses trials to confirm the reality of our faith. He said, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. God uses trials to confirm the reality of our faith. He uses trials for our eternal good and for his glory. And we may not understand when we're going through it. Many times we don't. We don't understand the reason, but we need to keep in view that they're, but for a moment, right, in light of eternity, that they're necessary for our deeper joy in God. Think of how cruel it would be for God to save us and then just leave us in our sin. You know, just leave us to us. He is working for our joy. He loves you relentlessly. Too much to leave you in your muck. Too much to leave you in your sin. He's working to make you more like Christ and he's working through your trials. Martin Luther says, affliction is the greatest book in his library. God accomplishes great things for our deeper joy in him and for his glory through trials. Think about it. The apostle Paul it says in scripture, he went to the third heaven or he saw the third heaven, whatever that is. And we, all, we know almost nothing of it, but God used his affliction in prison to give us numerous books of the Bible for our joy. I saw a friend at a recent wedding of um, two TCC members. It was an awesome time, a great time to celebrate. But I saw a friend who I hadn't seen in years and he had battled cancer, I believe it was in his early 30s. He had been through cancer. His life, I mean, it was teetering, Right. He went through chemo, he battled cancer. And here's what he said to me. He said, Paul, he said, I want you to know it's so hard to live when you're healthy. He said, it's so hard to live when you're healthy. What he meant was it's so hard to depend, not to depend on yourself. He is so hard not to focus on eternity when you're healthy and you feel strong. God sovereignly uses trials for our good and for his glory. And one day in the presence of Christ, we'll see clearly one day we'll see clearly. It'll all make sense. So to be filled with faith leading to praise in our trials, we need to look back at the resurrection, look forward to our secure inheritance, and live presently in light of his perfect purposes in our life. Look back at the resurrection, look forward to our secure inheritance, and live presently in light of his perfect purposes for our life. Now I wanna look at verse eight to nine. Let me read that. Look at verse eight. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the midst of trials, in the midst of trials, they love Christ, right? He's after your heart. They're loving Christ and they're filled with an inexpressible joy. It's like they can't put it in words. It's a joy that is so deep you can't even put it in words. In the midst of stormy waters, our hearts can be as calm as the bottom of the ocean. 
In the midst of stormy waters, our hearts are at rest. Our hope is secure. Our joy is indescribable because everything we need, everything they needed has been secured by a resurrected Savior who is unparalleled. He is unparalleled. And I want you to hear, I mean, I'm gonna let you just hear something that just, if I think indescribable joy, I mean, this, this just brings it to my heart. This just brings it to my heart. I want you to hear S.M. Lockridge. Do we have a picture of him? There he is, there he is. Uh, former pastor um, who, who passed away years, several years ago. But I want you just to listen to him describe our resurrected Savior. And I pray that this will move your hearts to indescribable joy. King is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, 
Amen. He is our secure hope. He is our secure hope. He's hope to overcome our messed up past. He's hope to live faithful in the present, and he's hope for your secured future. He is our living hope, and he is after your heart. Look to him. At the end of his life, um, church history tells us that Peter watched as his wife was crucified. Um, And in that moment of deepest agony, of deepest pain, it said that his last words to her were, remember Christ, remember our Lord. And the next day, it's, it's said that he was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die like his Savior. Now, that's, that's not in the Bible. That's in the annals of church history, so I can't guarantee it. But I can guarantee that if Peter could stand here before you today, right now, I guarantee that he would say, be all in for Christ. Look to him. Live for him. Hope in him. You will never regret it. You will never experience greater joy, greater peace. He can bring your heart inexpressible joy. Christ is everything, and he is worth it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Inexpressible joy in the midst of all circumstances can be yours. Look back at the resurrection. Look forward to your future inheritance. Live presently in light of his perfect purposes. And last thing I would just ask is, I wonder if you know him today. I wonder if you know him today. If you don't, um, today is a day of salvation. I'll, I'll be around, Pastor Sean's around. There are many people around who would love to tell you about Jesus if you don't know him. He can bring you in the midst of your darkest moments inexpressible joy. Let's pray. Father, um, empty hands we bring. <laughs> Stand before you now with empty hands, having nothing to offer for my own salvation, nor do any of us here So Lord, let us just, with humble hearts, just be able to say, it's all about you, God. If you don't move, we can't do it. (laughs) You have to move that we can even, um, that our hearts will even be awakened to you, God. So move, awaken hearts now, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please help us not to just have this clear perspective in this moment, but as we go through the week, let us go back to the text, to go back to these clear pictures of who you are, how good you are, and build our life around you and hope in nothing less than Christ. So Father, you're everything, you're all that we need. Let us find our hope and our satisfaction in you. We love you. Thank you for the brothers and sisters here. Pray that you will guide us this week for your glory and our joy in Christ, amen.